Hey everybody, this is your host, Matt Castellini, and welcome to Chicago Capital. We have a great episode lined up today, but before that, a word from our sponsors, World Business Chicago. In 2021 alone, local founders have raised more than $5 billion in VC dollars, making Chicago a national destination for founders, investors, and innovators. As the city of Chicago's economic development organization, World Business Chicago drives growth and opportunity for our local tech economy and innovation ecosystem through its flagship programs such as the Chicago Venture Summit, Startup Chicago, Think Chicago, and Venture Engine. Learn more via worldbusinesschicago.com. Peter, thank you so much for hopping on Chicago Capital. It's a true pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me on, Matt. Uh, first, I got to know, was there kind of an exchange of money? How did you get the Vantage, the Chicago VC Twitter handle? I mean, that's just that's just putting your flag in the ground right there. I, I just got lucky in, in 2015 when I joined Twitter, which I, I feel like that was late to join Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I joined it not until 2015. Uh, it was still available. It was inspired by Fred's Wilson, Fred Wilson's AVC. Uh, I was going to be a Chicago VC, but then I thought, uh, I'm not, not a Chicago VC, I'm the Chicago VC. So, so exactly. I went with that instead. Love that. Love that. I mean, I'm, I'm shocked too. I was expecting you to say, oh, I joined in 2009 right after Ashton Kutcher and I just snagged it up. But I guess it goes to show kind of the progression of the Chicago VC ecosystem in the past 10 years. It makes sense that 2015 kind of was, it was still around. Yeah, it does. I guess so. Uh, so on that note, uh, I think we'd love to kind of hear your background, how you got to VC and kind of the steps in your career. Yeah, so my background before Jump uh, was working mainly with uh, financial institutions and working with consumer finance companies. Uh, so I was a consultant, uh, management consultant, where I worked with companies like State Street and uh, Bank of America, Prudential, et cetera, on um, strategy, operations, new product development uh, type, uh, type projects. Then I went to Morgan Stanley, where I worked in their financial institutions group, uh, was working uh, mainly with E-Trade. Uh, on a number of things with them. And um, through the the time I spent working with these big you know asset managers and banks, um, just saw that there was a big opportunity for uh, technology companies to to do better, especially in in the financial services realm. Um, so I got excited about getting involved with those companies, um, those startups that were kind of disrupting uh, the banks and asset managers. so so decided to go into VC and that's how I found my way to jump. This was in, 2013, uh, first met the founders, Mike McMahon and Sush Chitness, who founded Jump Capital uh, right before I uh, joined. And um, really, it was just a unique opportunity in that it was a brand new venture fund starting from the ground up, um, had the backing of the owners of Jump Trading, which we'll probably talk about that more, but he did you know, a massively successful trading firm here in Chicago. Um, and just a really a unique uh, opportunity to, to build a venture fund and to um, invest in, in fintech, which is the area that I was uh, and am passionate about. So, so that's how I uh, came to jump and got into, uh, into venture. Did you ever think about joining a fintech startup at any given point? Or, or when did you realize you wanted to sort of be, be an investor in these companies as opposed to you know, an operator? Yeah, I was really more focused on investing in these companies. I, I just thought it was the way to get the broader view 
of the kind of different things that were happening in the space. I think that is one thing that I did like uh, from being in a banker and a, and a consultant was that they get this kind of broad perspective. And I think you also get that as an investor. Um, so I'd love to maybe someday, uh, you know, operate a company, but um, I th think it is a really unique perspective you get in the, in the investor seat. And you mentioned the affiliation with Jump Trading. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that and and how sort of Jump Capital, um, you know, sprang from Jump Trading and maybe some of the you know advantages you feel that that gives uh, you guys on the venture side, kind of that affiliation with Jump Trading. And um, you know, for listeners who may not may may or may not know, an introduction to Jump Trading would also be great. Yeah. So for folks that aren't familiar with Jump Trading, it is a global proprietary trading firm has about a thousand people at the firm uh, worldwide the firm has been around for 20 plus years and is one of the leading trading firms in the world uh, so trade some of the highest volumes in the, in the world across various exchanges is a deeply technology research driven firm that, that's really what they're what they're known for is their technology and their and, and their deep research so the benefit that we get from being affiliated with Trump trading um, is that we work with them on a lot of things, especially in capital markets and, and crypto. So in the crypto space, they are very, very large traders. There's about 100 people on the crypto trading team. Um, they're also builders, um, have you know, contributed to some key projects like Pith and Wormhole, which folks in the crypto space may be familiar with, um, you know, kind of run nodes, um, participate in governance, those types of things in the crypto space, which is, which is really valuable. So work very closely with them on things in crypto and in capital markets. There's a ton of value that comes from the um, kind of affiliation there. Uh, but we also do operate as an independent you know, venture firm. We're not um, you know, kind of you know, tied to the, the trading firm in any way other than um, there's a lot of strategic value that we get from the affiliation. Has there been kind of a institutional knowledge on crypto that goes back maybe further than some of the other VCs today because of the trading background and how immersed um, it feels like jump trading is in that world? I mean, what, what was sort of the timeline of the interest in crypto for jump trading and for jump capital? Yeah, it's something that really it um, kind of evolved on both sides of the firm um, at the same time, somewhat independently, and then you know kind of came together. So it was in 20, 2013 is when I start, first started paying attention to crypto, um, just from a personal perspective. Um, uh, saw the, what you know what in twenty thirteen the the government of Cyprus was seizing deposits in that country and the price of Bitcoin jumped and um, I saw that and I'm like oh my god is this real are people actually like leaving their country's money to go into this magic internet money and I started looking looking into it and. Um, then, yeah, so then about a year later, we hired an intern. We started like really developing an investment thesis. And then finally in 2015, we've made our first investment um, from the jump capital side into, into a crypto company. And alongside of this, kind of at the same time, Jump Trading was looking at this as a new investment asset. And they had a, a lab, a research lab at the University of Illinois. And they had some uh, interns at the time that just started, you know, kind of playing with it and you know building strategies and connectivity to exchanges and doing all the things that they were looking at on the trading side um, kind of simultaneous to us looking at it from an investment perspective but it definitely was validation from us uh, for us when we saw hey you know jump organizations like jump trading are really putting resources behind this that this is going to be something that it's it's probably going to be real you know this isn't going to go away 
um, when you see that type of like interest from you know large, very smart market participants. So it, it certainly encouraged us. And then since that time, we've made I don't know 60, 70 investments in, in crypto companies. We've been just hugely active. Um, you know, over the last six years, especially over the last year or so, it's really accelerated. Um, it, it's been a great um, you know partnership with with the folks in the trading side and all the activities that that they have uh, and that they do. Um, it's really synergistic to the investments that we're making. So, wow, 60, 70 companies. That's that's incredible. I mean, I think um, it sounds like it's just been such a huge focus for you guys. I, I'm just curious about, as you've been building out sort of that thesis and building out, you know, Jump Capital, uh, when you're bringing on new people into a venture fund, are, are you looking for people who have, you know, crypto, you know, crypto experience? Are you bringing in subject matter experts? I mean, this is a it was a nascent technology, and you guys were first starting out, and there's still so many unknowns. And venture itself is a very ambiguous and high risk kind of asset class. So, how did you guys de-risk some of those early, early stage investments you were making in a technology that itself was so kind of nascent? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, they're risky investments. You don't really, uh, you know, de-risk them uh, per se. I will say that our, our early investments um, and a lot of the investments we still make, it's in, um, in a crypto infrastructure that we think that no matter what happens within crypto, like these types of things are going to be necessary. So you think about things like, like custody and compliance and, um, you know, local exchanges or the ability to get, go from fiat currencies to cryptocurrencies. It doesn't matter if you believe like this is going to be digital gold, this is going to be a new payment rail, this is going to be the new way that people invest, um, uh, et cetera. It's kind of, you know, whatever, if crypto is something, like you're going to need things like custody, compliance, you know, exchange. So those types of things are, are I would say, somewhat de-risked because there's a uh, kind of a variety of ways that you can win with those types of investments. And that's what a, a lot of our early investments were. And I'm curious, uh, just zooming out a little bit, and and this is kind of the most extensive crypto conversation we've had on the show yet. So I think some listeners are, are you know, they know what crypto is, but they're maybe not, you know, immersed in this world every single day. And, um, you know, I can certainly say the same for myself. I'm curious from your perspective, as someone who's been around the space now for a number of years, wh what do you, are there major seminal moments or turning points in this market that, that you can think to and point back at and say, okay, that was a huge sort of moment for crypto, for Bitcoin, for blockchain adoption. Um, you know, from an outsider looking in, there's a few moments I can remember it really become sort of in vogue. Just curious for you, are there moments that you look back on and say, okay, that was a huge kind of, you know, watermark moment for, for the, you know, for this market? There's a few that come to mind from a, like, individual worldwide adoption. I think that El Salvador um, adopting it as as their net as a you know national um, a currency that that that's big like I I didn't expect to see that happen as soon as it did um, I think that that was big from a validation perspective internationally um, for me and an institutional adoption perspective Paul Tudor Jones one of the best known hedge fund managers of all time uh, publicly uh, making the case for Bitcoin a couple of years ago that I think was a big moment. Um, from an institutional investor perspective, because that's when I think things changed from it used to be it used to be risky as an institutional investor to allocate money towards crypto. And then once you start having people like Paul Tudor Jones, he, he was one of the biggest ones. But now you have others like Ray Dalio and, and a long list that you can point to and that, you know, if you're allocating towards crypto, you can always say, well, 
Paul Tudor Jones did it, and you know these other big names did it, and it's it's taken away the career risk. So those are some of the big ones that stand out to me. I think that there's a lot that still haven't happened. Like I think when we look back at the history of crypto, a lot of those seminal moments um, are yet to come on you know central banks you know uh, really buying this on, in a big scale on um, you know kind of what what different countries will do in different use cases. I, th I think that we're still in the very early innings. So a lot of those seminal moments just haven't happened yet. I see people on Twitter all the time making the argument that right now is like year 1999 for the internet. Um, and, and, you know, thinking that you're late to crypto or to blockchain right now is the is, is same as thinking you were late to the internet in 1999. Is that is that a general kind of statement that you would you know agree with? Yeah, I think that that's a good comparison. I used to look at some of those good comparisons on like internet adoption and crypto adoption and try to figure out like what year we are. Um, I haven't looked at it uh, recently, but I do think it's a it's a good comparison that um, we're still early. You know, right now is probably um, you know somewhere you know getting close to tech bubble maybe um, days. But you still, if you think of like internet adoption and rollout and all the everything that came after that, it's it's very early in that timeline. Is where we are now. All right, so there may be some bumps along the way in the next couple of years, but in general, directionally, um, yeah, it sounds like it's a, uh, it just sounds like it's an ex extremely exciting time to be as immersed in that kind of world as you are. And I I'm curious about how Jump kind of segments the opportunity. So when you guys look at the broader kind of crypto space, I mean, do you have sort of separate teams or, or people set aside for okay, you're going to look at blockchain, you know, based opportunities. You're going to look at you know DeFi. You're going to look at anything Web 3.0. Like, how do you guys kind of classify the buckets through you know through which you know you can invest into this space? Yeah, so our team does somewhat separate crypto versus non-crypto, just because they are very different um, kind of knowledge bases and, and expertise that you need. So broadly, we're investing in fintech, IT and data infrastructure, B two B SaaS. Uh, the future of commerce and, and crypto. Um, on the crypto side, it's it's uh, led by me and my partner Sorum, uh, lead our crypto investing team. Uh, we have uh, another person, Shanov, on our team, and we just hired hired another person as well who's going to be joining us. Uh, so we have dedicated re resources that really focus on crypto because you need to you need to be all in on crypto just to keep up with everything that is going on in crypto and and be successful there. Uh, within crypto, we don't really segment it further as far as, you know, resourcing against DeFi versus Web3 versus, you know, blockchain infrastructure versus DeFi applications, et cetera, um, just because there's so much overlap and um, it's kind of fine slicing at that point. Uh, but we do certainly, you know, have resources that are dedicated just to crypto because it's such a specialized field. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm I'm curious about how you approach this sector when you were first learning about it. it me myself i've tried to learn and get up to speed on it as much as possible over the past year or two but are there any just great resources you would recommend or thought leaders in the space or books that you read um that that you would recommend to listeners who you know are really interested in this topic but don't necessarily know where to start and they try to read uh satoshi nakamoto's white paper and it, they just don't know what's going on. they're just like what is all this uh where would you recommend people turn uh the, the white paper is a good place to start to understand bitcoin uh yeah, I would say when I started, there's a number of books that were helpful, things like uh, The Internet of Money by Andreas Antonopoulos. Uh, there's actually a series of three books there that are very good. Um, books like Mastering Bitcoin and Mastering Ethereum, Digital Gold, uh, The Age of Cryptocurrencies, like those are all great. And then once you have the basics, I think it's like crypto Twitter is like really where like a lot of the like 
activity and knowledge and information is these days, and it's just finding the right people to follow. Um, and that that's where I get a lot of my information these days. It's, it's crypto Twitter and then uh, podcasts. There's a lot of great podcasts out, out there, like uh, On the Brink and Bankless, um, Epicenter, um, could go on and on, but there's a lot of great crypto podcasts. I feel like I feel like we could just take all your resources and packet it into a blog post, and that would be a highly read blog post. Uh, it sounds like I think you have a lot of great um, follows thus far. I'm curious about speaking of um, you know recent news. Uh, obviously, Jump Capital just raises you know a new 350 million dollar fund. Uh, congratulations are in order. Uh, would just kind of love to hear sort of. It's probably something we've touched upon already, but sort of the the mandate of this new fund, uh, you know, what the process was like fundraising in 2021. Um, would love to hear more about the new fund you guys just raised. Yeah, so very exciting. Uh, yeah, big new fund, uh, significantly larger than our previous fund, which is a $200 million fund. Uh, the new fund is two-pronged strategy, um, and a traditional software and crypto. Uh, close to half of the fund is allocated towards crypto. So that was a big... Um, and kind of push for us is that we've, as I mentioned, you know, we've been investing in crypto since 2015, uh, but now having you know a large part of the fund that's specifically dedicated towards that, I would say that that is probably the biggest change with the, with the new fund is really doubling down on our crypto efforts. Um, and then with our core strategy, it's just a lot of continuing what we've done and been successful with in um, the areas that we invest. Um, you know, finding great entrepreneurs, you know, bringing our resources to bear, um, both from an operational uh, perspective um, on the investment team, but also we have an operating platform that we help with recruiting, business development, sales, marketing, um, a number of other things that um, you know try to really add a lot of value to the companies we invest in, and we've been very successful with that. So uh, it's really just you know continuing to scale what we've been successful with and doubling down on crypto. And do you anticipate what's kind of the um, average check size you will all go for stage of these companies? Is it, you know, seed through Series B? Would love to hear a little bit more about the semantics. Yeah, so we are uh, typically Series A investors. That's our, our sweet spot. Uh, investing between 2 to $10 million uh, for investment, for our initial investment. Um, for equity companies, like to lead rounds. For, that's the, the position we per, prefer to be in. Uh, we also do invest in tokens on the crypto side, so uh, we'll make um, you know investments in that that same range. Um, a lot of times, we're investing in tokens kind of pre-launch before they're publicly uh, listed, so often going a little bit earlier, sometimes a little bit smaller on the token investments. Uh, but yeah, typically liking to stay in that kind of one to ten million dollar initial investment is um, where mo we do most of our work. So I come from more of a background of enterprise software. And so Series A to me usually means that the company has probably found product market fit. Um, and, you know, there's sort of consensus idea of what that means for a Series A software company by looking at, you know, retention over time. Um, I'm curious, is there a difference in what you all look for in terms of product market fit for some of these, um, you know, crypto startups or some of these tokens that you're talking about? Is there is there nuances there in that market that you look for? Yes. So on the a token side, it's 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 certainly different. On the equity side, if you're investing in the equity of a you know an exchange or an application or those types of things, it's a lot of the same metrics that you'd look at for a non-crypto company. For uh, you know a company that's launching a a token, um, sometimes it's similar and sometimes it's different. I mean, you are looking again. You're looking at user adoption and those metrics on. 
you know, are people using the protocol? Are people using the product? Um, you know, is this something that, again, to your point, has product market fit? Maybe the difference is oftentimes, like on a, from a revenue perspective, that these early stage protocols are not generating revenue. Um, so you need to look at it more on a, like, you know, how will this accrue value to the token in the future? instead of a current revenue perspective, which is kind of the, I would say the biggest difference between the two. Got it. Got it. No, that makes total sense. Um, and, and on the topic of the new fund, uh, again, I wanted to circle back because, you know, we have a lot of a decent amount of MBA students that listen to the show. So always have to get the question out there is, do you guys anticipate bringing on new people? How do you look at kind of hiring uh, at Jump Capital in general? Yeah, so we we have been hiring at, uh, at Jump Capital specifically for our crypto team. We just hired two new people. Um, I uh, we don't we're not currently hiring for full time on on the uh, on the team, but that that can change at any time. We're always looking for people with kind of unique backgrounds and experiences uh, from a full time perspective. Uh, interns we are pretty much perpetually hiring for. Love to have. Uh, MBA interns that come in, especially if they have unique expertise, experience. Um, so if you happen to be an MBA that has some crypto um, experience, I'd uh, love to talk to you about an internship. Yeah, I, you know, I was going to ask on that line, um, kind of general pieces of advice for for MBA students or you know really anyone who's interested in the crypto space, wants to get into venture capital. Um, you know, any general bits of advice on how they should really go about showing that interest and, and getting more involved to hopefully land one of these full time roles at a fund such as yourself. Yeah, I'd say it's it's really about just getting kind of getting involved, getting your your hands dirty in some way or another. In crypto, I think that means actually like uh, you know participating in these um, you know in these protocols that you you know go trade on decentralized exchanges and you know borrow and lend and you know get some NFTs and like yield farm, like do all of these things that you know you know that actually be active in, in crypto. Um, as well as, you know, talking with, you know, crypto companies and investors and being active in the community. Um, that's one of the really great things about crypto is that, like, everybody can be a user of these products. So if you want to be involved in crypto as an investor or with a company, I think step one is, like, just that go out there and, like, be a user of all these things. Uh, more generally, if you're looking to be in, you know, VC, I think it's just you know, spending time with VCs, spending time with, with startups, um, it's really it's a, it's a small community, especially in Chicago. So it's not that hard to get connected with you know all the VC investors. And if you're looking to get into the space, that's like the first thing you should do, I think. Yeah, I think one of the other things that you should do is 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 also follow people who are putting out great content, such as uh, all of you over at Jump Capital. And on that note, um, very recently you guys published a blog on stable coins. And so I'm basically approaching this conversation as somebody who had heard of stable coins, definitely heard the term, um, but you know, like Litecoins, and it, there's there's a lot of terms out there. There's a lot of uh, different sort of nuances to the crypto market. It's not an area that I ever really took a deep dive on. Um, but you know, obviously, your guys' blog pro blog post was excellent, and uh, we're definitely going to link it in the show notes. But I'd love to kind of walk through. Um, you know, first we could start with. I guess a general yeah, a definition of stablecoins for the audience. Yeah, so uh, stablecoin is a token that's traded on a public ledger that seeks to track the value of a fiat currency. Uh, so it's typically a dollar. So another way to think of it is it's a token on a blockchain that's worth a dollar. And right now, today, um, to kind of 
contextualize things. What is sort of the market value of the stable coin um, um, you know, market or opportunity right now? Yeah, there's currently over $130 billion of stable coins outstanding, uh, and that's up over 20x year over year. So it's been growing very, very quickly. What's kind of been the catalyst, I guess, for that growth year over year or in even in the past couple of years, although it does really feel like year over year has been a dramatic um, up, upshift or uptake in that market? Yeah, the last 12 to 18 months have been pretty dramatic as far as the growth. Uh, there's been a few things that have been driving this growth, and this is really what our what our blog post was about: is kind of what what has driven the growth and what we think is going to drive it forward as it goes from 130 billion to we think multi-trillion uh, dollars outstanding over the next few years. So the main driver to date um, has been trading using stable coins. So the um, great thing about stable coins broadly is that it, it enables anyone anywhere in the world to hold and transact in U.S. dollars. Um, why this is good from a trading perspective is that it, it allows people around the world that don't have U.S. dollar bank accounts to hold dollars, send dollars, and trade using dollars. So many traders want to trade with U.S. dollars as a base pair. You want to trade you know, uh, Bitcoin versus dollars or ETH versus dollars or whatever it is. Dollars is just the unit of account that's used broadly for trading. Um, with stable coins, you don't any exchange can list those pairs, and they don't need to have U.S. dollar bank accounts, which is, um, you know, very valuable for exchanges around the world, where it's not easy to get that actual U.S. dollar bank account for the exchanges or for the traders themselves. So anyone can trade these pairs without having to have a dollar bank account, and then anyone can also send these stable coins in between exchanges um, instantly, freely. Um, you know, kind of very, very easily, which is just like a very, very easy way to move money around the system. If you're a trader, you will often want to move money from one exchange to another. Um, and using stable coins is pretty much the simplest way in the world to do that. So that is what's fueled the growth of stable coins today, is that traders are trading using stable coins and traders are using stable coins to move dollars around the crypto ecosystem. And is that when you say traders? So you know, are we talking about you know sell side traders at Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, or, or buy side hedge fund traders? Uh, I'd just love to break it down a little bit into you know the actual users of this, and are big banks kind of already um, adopting um, you know stable coins? Yeah, so it's not big banks yet. Um, this is um, crypto hedge funds, largely crypto trading firms. They are the big users. Um, of, of stable coins, and then individual retail traders. Um, the, the, the crypto market is is you know, very largely retail, so uh, you know, kind of individual traders, and you know, where where you cut off from retail, the institutional or professional, uh, sometimes is a, is a little little bit blurry. But those are kind of the two main categories. It's not banks right now. Uh, large banks aren't you know touching stable coins. They will at some point. There is a ton of interest um, on this. I've uh, talked with the. Uh, a committee at the Fed, which is made up of people from large banks, a couple of weeks ago, um, talking with them again um, over the next couple of weeks, just because there is a ton of interest from these folks in understanding uh, stablecoins, how they can be used, what is going to be the impact on their businesses. Uh, but they're not there yet, which is just another signal that hey, we're we're really early. Um, that you know the banks aren't aren't touching this yet. And I think that's that's a good kind of um, summation of the trading side of things. But I think a, a concept that I think a lot of people are going to really easily grasp is the cross-border transactions that you talk about. A lot of you could kind of unpack the opportunities there and where that sort of opportunity is in its adoption cycle. Yeah. 
so, so what's happened is that it started with this trading use case. And so you have this situation where pretty much anyone in the world can go from their local currency into stable coins. And, and they started doing this for trading. But now you have this infrastructure built. So anywhere in the world, if you're a trader or not, can pretty easily go from a local fiat currency into a stable coin and then send that stable coin anywhere in the world. And what that enables is if you want to move money from one country to another, suddenly you can do this very, very easily by you exchange your local fiat currency for a stable coin, you send that stable coin anywhere in the world, and then there's another exchange on the other end that you can go into uh, the fiat currency you want to go, go to. So we're starting to see this for um, just commerce, like cross-border commerce. If you're a you know, manufacturer in Asia and you're paying a supplier in Latin America, it is often easier to do that on stablecoin rails than it is going through the traditional banking system, which can take several days or can be very high fees. It's a very complex process. Just using stablecoins are much easier for that. So we're seeing you know, vendor payments, we're seeing remittances um, you know, for family members, we're seeing uh, payroll, where it's just easier to pay the people that work for you internationally. Um, with stablecoins or going through on stablecoin rails, um, that is really where we've seen a lot of the momentum recently is these cross-border payments for a variety of use cases. And so are these companies that have already are sort of early to the game and adopting the usage of stablecoins, are, are they industry agnostic? Is there particular industries that are, are more, you know, akin to using this? How would you describe kind of the industry makeup or is it just kind of all over the place? It's really, it's all over the place. Um, and it's interesting, you you know, you talk to folks in, especially in places like Asia or Latin America, and there's just companies that have found that this is a better way to move money around the world. You know, oftentimes it is, it's more kind of tech forward companies because they, you know, understand it. Um, these things, but it's really, it's, it's a wide variety of folks that are starting to use, you know, stable coins as payment rails, just because it's, it's a more efficient way to do things. And, you know, staying on the remittances and B2B payments front, are there companies that are great examples? And, and what services are they providing? Are they infrastructure providers? Like, how do the companies actually come in and these startups come in and, and service this sort of um, transaction and movement? Yeah, so what a lot of companies are doing is like abstracting the crypto away from the end user. Because the end users at the end of the day, they often like they want to pay a vendor, they want to send money to their family, you know, they have something that they want to accomplish. They don't want to think about, you know, the crypto on the back end and how this is all working. So you have, you know, companies like um, like Afrax, which are just helping, you know, people send money to Africa uh, using crypto on the back end, but that's really, you know, abstracted away from them. Or you know, companies like Value, uh, which operate in Venezuela and are helping, you know, people send money to Venezuela. And then also helping people use money in Venezuela and pay merchants, um, but abstracting a lot of the crypto, you know, pieces away from the the end user. And that's where a lot of the you know the companies come in because the infrastructure, the crypto itself, is you know it's open source you know software. There's you know exchanges that you can use. The layer that's needed a lot of the times is how, how do you make that more user friendly to folks that aren't crypto native. So when you look at the landscape here, do you, do you see this as a as a situation where each company you mentioned two already um, in Africa and I think El Salvador, but do do you imagine every company kind of having sort or sorry every country every country sort of having a company um, that arises to sort of handle that country's um, you know transaction flow? Is that how you see this playing out, or do you think there will be more consolidation? Yeah, I think that right now it is a lot of country specific. Um, Companies and we've invested in a lot of country-specific or region-specific companies. 
uh, because there's a lot of value in um, one, there's a lot of local, local regulation, so you need to have the right regulatory licenses, you need to have banking relationships in those countries, um, you need to build a brand in those countries. So there's a lot of things that a value that you get from a local perspective, and that's why we've invested in a lot of like local crypto exchanges, for example. Uh, we do think over time there'll be a significant amount of consolidation as the larger players you know, want to be in every part of the world, and when they look to expand, they're going to say, hey, do I want to get the regulatory licenses and the banking relationships and build a new brand, or do I just want to acquire the local leader? Um, so that's one of our core theses is that as the large players expand globally, they'll acquire these local players. And that makes a lot of these local players, you know, good potential investments in our view. And looking at the rest of kind of the cross-border transaction bucket, is, is there an area that you feel, you know, you talk about in the piece, but an area that you feel is the most underpenetrated or at the very, still at the very earliest of stages where you see the least amount of companies um, sort of active today trying to solve that problem? Um, I mean, from a, like a stablecoin adoption perspective, where we see the end like where it's kind of the, the third stage of the adoption cycle, we see it as like trading and then it's cross-border. And then the third one is actual use in domestic economies. Is that people just using this within their country for uh, paying each other, for paying businesses, for using it as a you know a day-to-day currency. That we are uh, the earliest in seeing that. Uh, we are starting to see this in places like Venezuela, where you know have real you know currency problems. They've already largely dollarized. So going from you know being dollarized to mean crypto dollarized isn't that big of a jump. Um, but we do think we're going to see this in more and more places, especially places with unstable currencies, where people prefer to hold and spend um, you know, crypto and specifically crypto dollars uh, instead of their local currency. And you know, an area that a company that you, you guys call out in the thesis, and I think one that probably is probably the most... Um, you know, most well known out of all the companies, I would I would venture guess is BlockFi. Um, I think that's one that's been getting a lot of press in the last nine to twelve months. Um, how does BlockFi sort of fit into this thesis? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we're big investors and supporters of BlockFi. Uh, BlockFi, great company. Uh, what they do is they offer uh, interest bearing accounts uh, to individuals and businesses. So if you have you know Bitcoin or if you have dollars or um, you know other crypto. Um, you can do it in dollars. Uh, that's a big part of their business. You can just earn interest on that. Um, and you can earn very high interest rates, like 8%, I think, on dollars right now. And then what they do with the dollars and crypto that they pay interest on is that they lend that out to borrowers around the world. So how does this play into the stablecoin thesis? Um, it plays in because what they're doing, it's really it's borderless capital markets because they can take deposits from anyone anywhere in the world because anyone can hold stablecoins. And then they can lend that out to anyone anywhere in the world because, again, anyone can hold stablecoins. So what you've taken is in the past, the way capital markets work is that it's very kind of fragmented, is that capital does not easily flow from an individual saver kind of in one country to an individual borrower in another country. Like you would have to go through many, many intermediaries and um, correspondent banks like that. That is just not a process that really smoothly happens. Suddenly with crypto, like it's very easily for a stablecoin to move like from me you know, through BlockFi to anywhere, anywhere else in the world. And there's just kind of one, you know, party that needs to facilitate that instead of a whole kind of pyramid of um, uh, intermediaries that you see in the traditional financial system. 
Yeah, no, I, I think it makes a ton of sense. And like I said, I mean, congratulations on being involved with that company. I think they're one that has, it's one of the more well-known, um, I would say, um, at least in my you know estimation. I think it's it's one that most people, I think, who are at least remotely kind of um, remotely uh, knowledgeable about the space have heard of. I, I just remember hearing about them because the incredible kind of uh, savings rate that you could get um, from from you know from putting money with them you know back six months ago. Um, I, I'm curious about one area of the piece that that I really love that I think you guys hit on um, that's just personally interest to me per- personally interesting to me is um, how stable coins are going to play into you know digital economies. Um, you know we talked about local and sort of real asset economies. Um, a little bit, but I, w- I would just love to hear kind of the role you think stable coins are going to play in digital economies, the metaverse, et cetera. Yeah. So as we're increasingly moving towards like purely digital economies, you think you know, anything on- online where you're paying for digital goods and services um, or just, you know, tipping people online, which you now do on, on Twitter or, um, you know, paying for, you know, various subscriptions of, of online services, like we're moving towards more and more, like things are purely just online. And that's the way that we're kind of living big parts of our lives. Um, so one of the things we think about is like, how are, how are those payments going to happen? And, you know, when you think about the metaverse, like whatever the metaverse looks like, I think that's still kind of undefined, but, you know, there's going to be a, a payment system for that. And what is that, you know, what will that be? And I think that the most natural, like, you know, payment system for a digital world is a purely, you know, digital dollar. And I think it's, um, I'd be shocked is if that is not, you know, stable coins become the you know, predominant payment system for, you know, all these digital economies. If you're paying for a product or service, you know, online, that the kind of most natural way to do that will be with a purely digital dollar, which is a stable coin. And it because it it really at the end of the day it reduces frictions of transactions. I mean, you can be trading, you can be interacting with people across the world, and as you know, the metaverse itself is a global uh, economy with no restrictions of borders, at least to my knowledge. So, is that the idea really there? Is that it's just this purely frictionless way of transacting with no problems, no hangups, um, and and capital you know through through these stablecoins can just flow throughout the world. Yeah, that, that's a great way of describing it. That kind of frictionless, pay anyone anywhere in the world. Um, all you need to do is have a you know a crypto wallet, which is open source software. Anyone can have that. Um, so yeah, I really liked how you described that. It's, it's frictionless, um, kind of easy payments to anyone. Look, if you wanna if you wanna add that blurb to the blog post <laughs> and you know maybe do a revised edition, give me a shout out. I won't stop you. I won't stop you. Um, now, in my head, whenever I think of the metaverse and whenever I think of what you're talking about, for some reason, Fortnite just always comes to mind. And I just imagine people transacting with each other via Fortnite with stable coins. I don't know if that ever comes across your mind, but that's at least what I'm thinking. I, I typically think of Snow Crash. I don't know if you've read that book. It's the, the original metaverse book, which I, I think is great. I've definitely heard of it. It's on my uh, it's on my audible list. It's one that I've heard a lot of people talk about as being excellent. So, uh, yeah, no, that's that, that's amazing. Um and, you know, near the end of the piece, you guys talk about the variety of structures that stable coins come in. Um, I, I think that'd be a great point to touch on is just, you know, the three different structures that, you know, stable coins usually come in. Yeah. So three different types. Um, there's fiat backed, which is this, the most straightforward, which is you take dollars, you put them in a bank account, you issue a token against them. Um, that is the predominant form. If you've heard of like USDC or Tether. Those are VFX stablecoins. There's the most, they're the most common and widely used. There is crypto collateral backed. So there's are where you take crypto 
collateral, as it said, you put those, you know, in some sort of, you know, smart contract typically, and then you issue dollars against them. Uh, so die, make or die. That's the most well-known uh, crypto collateral backed stablecoin. Um, it's uh, it's more centralized than a, a fiat back, but it's also it's fairly capital inefficient because you need like a multiple of the um, amount of dollars that you're issuing that you need it in collateral. You need to over collateralize it. Um, and then the third um, one is algorithmically stable um, managed stablecoins, and these are uh, I think the most interesting because these are stablecoins that don't actually have dollars or collateral in a bank account or in a smart contract, uh, that they use an algorithmic process to stabilize the value of the token to a dollar. They typically will, or they'll often use a secondary token which floats in value, and then there's a role that that secondary token plays in stabilizing the, the stablecoin. So they're typically somewhat more complex systems, uh, but what you can do there is you can create capital efficient and decentralized stablecoins, which is kind of what what you're ideally looking for. Uh, so we're very excited about. There's one in specifically um, a company called Terra, uh, project called Terra, which makes the UST stablecoin. We think it's a very kind of elegantly designed, um, decentralized, um, you know, algorithmic monetary policy uh, stablecoin. It's been growing very, very quickly. Um, so we think that that's one of the most innovative uh, kind of designs out there right now. When you guys approached this thesis, um, is, was it a top-down approach where you kind of looked at the overall landscape and realized that coincidentally you'd be, you'd already made multiple investments in this space, um, but just never really put the time into connecting all the dots? Or was it over the years as you've been investing in companies like BlockFi and talking to these founders and kind of getting immersed in the space that way that this thesis kind of really materialized and came about? How did, how did you guys go about sort of um, conceptualizing and putting this together? Yeah, it's been very much... Uh, beliefs that we've had over time and the, you know, writing this down was really just kind of documenting what we've been thinking and investing behind for, for years. Um, I think even, the, you know, at the beginning of 2020, I think we wrote a piece called the rise of Bitcoin and stable coins. Um, so we've been working on this theme for a, a very long time. It's one of our core beliefs is that, you know, stable coins are going to be um, kind of big, uh, you know, kind of pieces of, of kind of where, kind of where the crypto story goes. And that's typically how these theses work is that it's not something, you know, we think of overnight and write it up. There's, you know, things that we've been looking at for, you know, many months and talking with a lot of companies and typically making, you know, a number of investments. And then we just, you know, kind of formalize our, our thoughts into these types of pieces. And then looking out, any kind of risks that you guys acknowledge in this space, whether it be regulatory overhang or, you know, technological kind of um, adoption, uh, what's the biggest risk, do you think, to the thesis moving forward? Yeah, definitely regulatory. Uh, that would be the biggest threat um, right now is that um, the the largest stable coins are, you know, fiat backed, as I mentioned, that they actually have dollars in a bank account. Those are you know, very much subject to regulatory, you know, approval. If regulators say that, you know, these things can't exist anymore, they can, you know, go after the bank accounts where those are being held, they can shut that down. Um, I don't think that would happen, but I think that that is the greatest risk. That risk gets mitigated somewhat when we start to talk about more decentralized stablecoins that are not as easily um, censored. Um, 
but if I had to say like what's the biggest risk for stablecoins right now, it, it definitely it's it's um it's regulatory. There's other risks you know that we could talk about, but that that's the big one right now. And there is a lot of regulatory attention being put on it um, right now. There's a number of federal agencies that are going to put up pieces on stablecoins. So uh, I don't think that there's going to be any sort of harsh crackdown or anything like that. Uh, but I do think that there, we're going to see more regulation around it, which at the end of the day will probably be a, a good thing. And it is it the federal agencies? I mean, is it is it the you know Treasury Department? Is it the Federal Reserve? Who who are, who's kind of leading the charge on some of these kind of um, you know emerging you know um, crypto you know crypto spaces? Yeah, there's it's um, a lot of overlap from different agencies. So the, the Treasury, the Fed, the SEC, the President has a separate working group that's looking at it. Um, that's one of the things about crypto which makes it. Uh, tricky from a like a regulatory perspective is that it's not clearly defined where it falls um, for most crypto assets. You know, are they are they currencies? Are they commodities? Are they property? Um, you know, kind of where do they fall from a regulatory perspective is is blurry. So you often have various regulatory groups coming in and opining in in different ways. Yeah, it seems like a lot of cooks in the kitchen, uh, which which could lead to. Uh lead to some, uh, you know, adoption or at least some, uh, you know, um, challenges in the, in the long run. But, um, I, it sounds like an incredibly exciting time. I I'm wondering if there are any other kind of core beliefs and thesis you guys have put out, you mentioned, uh, the rise of Bitcoin and stable coins piece that, you know, that blog post, any other posts that you would refer readers to, um, that you all have, uh, you know, put out there. Oh, um, I would say, Check out our website, jumpcap.com. We have an insights page. We have a lot of uh, you know pieces that we that we've written. You can also sort on just the crypto ones if you want to check that out. Uh, as far as our core beliefs, you asked that. I mean, there are certain things that we just think are you know kind of inherently true, and we're we're very much investing behind, and these are kind of core beliefs. Um, and that is one: we think stablecoins are going to be a new global money movement rail that a lot of um, you know, commerce is going to move to. We do think that Bitcoin is the new digital gold. It's going to be a core asset that's going to be in most investors' portfolios um, over the years. We think that DeFi is delivering or will deliver financial services to billions of people in a whole new way. Uh, so that's a big theme that we're investing behind. Um, and then we think that broadly Web3 is going to redefine what ownership means in a digital age. And I think we're starting to see that in things like gaming and nfts and you know all of the questions around you know what does it really mean to own a, you know own own a nft and you know can't you just right click on this j save on this jpeg and but those are types of things that we think it is it's redefining redefining ownership in a digital age and i, I think that that that's another thing that we believe you know, speaking of, you, know, you mentioned um, uh, crypto Twitter at one point, and um, you know, when I look at some of the people I follow and where they're based, um, I think it's fair to say there's a lot going on in New York City right now. There's a lot of people, you know, building crypto startups there. Um, but I'm curious about, you know, your guys' decision to be located in Chicago, and you know, you yourself to be based here. Um, you know, what do you see as some of the advantages of the Chicago market? Do you think it has a role to play in the sort of crypto space or the general sort of blockchain space um, in the long run? I'm curious about where you think Chicago uh, falls in this kind of new emerging technology. Yeah, Chicago has been coming on very strong from a from a crypto perspective, and I think it really is becoming a hub. Um, the kind of initial um, the kind of crypto activity was a lot from the trading firms. You have Jump, CMT, DRW. 
uh, you know, DB Trading and a number of others who have been involved in crypto since the fairly early days from a trading perspective. Um, and then what's come out of that is, is a lot of other, now there's a lot of companies building here. You have uh, companies like FTX, which is, you know, has a, a large office here. Um, bunch of uh, startups and projects, especially in the Solana ecosystem. There is just a huge amount of Solana activity in Chicago. A lot of people don't know that, but Chicago is definitely a Solana hub. Um, and then you have like the DeFi Alliance, which is like, I think the best crypto accelerator in the world. Uh, based here in Chicago. So there is just a lot of great crypto stuff going on here. Peter, thank you so much for hopping on. This has been such a blast. I, I, I can't recommend uh, the, the blog post enough and just all the content you guys put out. Um, it, it's really exciting to have you know a firm like Jump Capital who's kind of at the the bleeding edge of a lot of these sort of new emerging technologies in the crypto and blockchain space, you know, having you based here in Chicago, uh, being able to pick your brain and get you on the podcast is, is, is such a treat. And, uh, I just want to thank you so much. And, you know, you've been around the Chicago ecosystem for a while. Um, I would love to ask any favorite Chicago restaurants that you want to give a shout out to. This is actually weirdly some of the listeners favorite part of the show. So any shout outs, I know I'm putting you on the spot, anything come to mind. Oh man, uh, I'm vegetarian, so like the Chicago Diner is like that's my go-to. <laughs> okay, love that. That's great. Yeah, no, I don't think we've had anyone uh, anyone talk about that, or uh, might be the first vegetarian on the show that I know of. So that's perfect. All right, um, Peter, thank you so much for hopping on. This is a true blast. Thanks so much for having me.